It seems as though the expectation of many of the Jewish leaders when Jesus came was really quite neatly sewn up. Uh, many of them felt that they had interpreted the prophecies clearly and carefully and that they knew that what was going to happen. When the Messiah came, this present evil age would come to an end in the sense that all the enemies of Israel would be destroyed. Um, many of the nations would uh, affirm uh, the sovereignty of Yahweh, perhaps all the nations would, as it were, be brought to Jerusalem to recognize it as the center of world government. And the Davidic king would reign in Jerusalem and all the nations would pay him tribute, either reluctantly or voluntarily. Now, as I said in the last session, it was a great shock to the religious leaders uh, to hear Jesus teaching differently or perhaps not so much a shock as to them it was a confirmation that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Interesting how Luke tells us that after Pentecost a large number of the priests were added and that the resurrection and the witness to the resurrection was obviously a very powerful fact in that in that it confirmed that all that he said was true. But the kingdom which he came in to bring in was, as I've said in the second section there, both a kingdom that exists now and yet is not with us in its fullness. And it seems to me that in our current situation within uh, evangelical churches, we need to have a clear distinction between the now and the not yet. We enjoy the down payment, if you like, the first instalments of uh, the kingdom and all that that means. It is uh, our experience of uh, Christ and the gospel is a real and genuine experience, but it is not yet the full experience. We wait for its completion. Uh, in some ways, it's a bit like an engagement ring. Uh, one of the words that's used in the New Testament, Arabone, uh, means uh, an engagement ring. It's a pledge of what is yet to be. So in our lives here in this world, we can and do experience many blessings of the kingdom. We experience forgiveness, reconciliation, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the assurance of eternal life. All these are now blessings that are given to those who submit to the kingly rule of Christ. But at the same time, we are not yet what we one day shall be. We are not yet free from the down drag of our old sinful human nature. I said in our last prayer that we still fight the world, the flesh and the devil. One day we won't. One day we will be delivered from all of that, but not yet. And there's no way in the now that we can reach the not yet, because that's for heaven. So the Bible forces us to look at the ultimate horizon, the far horizon, the heavenly realities, and to say that's what we're moving towards, but we cannot bring the not yet into the now. That lies with God in the future. He's given us many blessings in the now, but he hasn't yet given us them all. So if it's true that we are not yet delivered from sin fully, there are many other ways in which we are not yet complete. We are not yet the full uh, uh, completion of all that the gospel will bring us. Now, of course, from time to time in the history of the Christian church, people have forgotten the not yet and said we can have it all now. The holiness and perfectionist movements of the 19th and early 20th century are an example of that, and some of them are still around today. You probably know that apocryphal story about Spurgeon 
Uh, we shall all have to apologize to Spurgeon in heaven, all the preachers, because we tell stories that are probably not true. But uh, certainly the story makes a good point about the man who said to Spurgeon, uh, confusing the now and the not yet, I've reached the stage now where I don't sin any longer, Mr. Spurgeon. I've reached perfect love and perfect holiness. And Spurgeon said, well, that's very interesting. I'd like you to come and have dinner with me this week and we'll talk about it. And as they were sitting at the dinner table, it became quite clear that what the man had done was move the goalposts. He just didn't call things sin, but the Bible called sin. And in order to make the point, it said that Spurgeon picked up the glass of water that was in front of him and threw it in the man's face there at the dinner table. Not unnaturally, the man was rather angry and flustered and began to express himself in a less than holy uh, frame of mind and voice. And Spurgeon said to him, ah, there you are. You see, that's the point, he said. You see, the old man in you is not dead. He just fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. (laughs) Now, beware of those movements that want to pull the not yet into the now. They are a delusion. God has given us great blessings and we want to enjoy them to the full, but there is always a future. There's heaven to look forward to. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If in this world only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men to be most pitied. In other words, if we've got it all now, well, really. I mean, it's true, isn't it? If our experience now is all there is, even however glorious that experience is, there's much, much more than that. There's a whole dimension that will be ours in the second coming of the Lord and in the eternal kingdom. Now, the term for the period between the now and the not yet in the New Testament is the last days. The last days are the days that stand between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The whole of that period is what the New Testament means by the last days. And clearly, within the last days, there will be last days. But the whole period is the last days, because God, you see, has done everything in Christ and in his ascension and the descent of the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit, everything we have to live in the now, godly lives, is given to us through the Spirit, through the Scriptures. Everything that we wait for will be given to us at the end, when we're transformed into his likeness, when we see him face to face. Well, now, why talk about this? Well, because as the New Testament comes to the end of its time scale, these are the issues that are facing the church. We've been thinking a lot on our way through about this theme of covenant fulfillment. Do you remember Graham Goldsworthy's statement that we started with in lecture one? God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. Well, as the New Testament closes, let's ask ourselves those questions. Who are God's people? Where are God's people? And what of God's rule? As we follow the story through, we've seen that God's people have had various identities at various times, Adam and Eve in the garden, Abraham and his descendants, the faithful remnant of Israel, the New Testament Church of Christ. But the church is described as Christ's body. That's making the point that only Christ can really fulfill the biblical hope of the people of God. He is what the reformers called the proper man. He is the one who in himself fulfills all that was needed. So the clue that we're given is that now God's people are found in relationship to the Lord Jesus, not by any earthly birth, but by the new birth. And we share in the membership of the people of God only insofar as we are united to Christ by faith. 
So God's people are those who belong to him through Jesus. Let me make just three points about that. A, in his perfect obedience to the Father's will, Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Do you remember last night we talked about Hebrews 10, how no animal sacrifice could ever present a perfect will to God, only a perfect body. Only Jesus could present a perfect human will in the place of my rebellious will. And he sacrificed that on the cross as an offering that was pleasing to the Heavenly Father. So he became the second Adam, the representative head of a new humanity, a new creation. And we, united to Christ in solidarity with him through faith, become the people of God. We become members of that new humanity. B, Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations will be blessed. The verse that I've quoted is one of those classic 316s. Do you collect the 316s of the New Testament? They're worth looking at. Galatians 3.16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. So Paul says the promise to Abraham finds its fulfillment in Christ, and only as we are in Christ can we share it, but if we're in Christ, we do share it to the full. So all the promises to Abraham are not just for the Jews, they're for every Christian. To say the Old Testament is a book for the Jews is like saying the Romans is a book for the Roman Catholics. It's about as sensible as that. No, of course it dealt with the Jews and it still has a message to the Jews, but it is to all the people of God who are united by Christ. Now we become members of God's people through faith in Jesus, the seed of Abraham in whom the promise is fulfilled because Jesus fulfills the role of the true Israel. That's why in Matthew 2, Jesus is brought out of Egypt after his infancy, just as Israel was brought out of Egypt. It's a parallel idea. Out of Egypt I have called my son, quoting Hosea in Matthew 2, verse 15, because uh, it's, it's saying, here is the new Israel. When Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted of the devil... He uses the scriptures from Deuteronomy which relate to Israel's temptations in the desert. And where Israel failed in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, uh, Jesus triumphs. So what's it saying? Well, it's saying he is being tested as the son of God, as Israel, and he comes through with flying colors where the old Israel failed. So the meaning of John 15, as I said earlier, when he says, I am the true vine, picking up the picture of Israel, is I am the real son of God. I am the true son of God. And we are grafted into the stock as branches, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, by faith in him. That doesn't mean to say that God has finished with the Jews, as Romans 9 to 11 says. Paul was very concerned for them and prayed that they would turn to Christ and find the Messiah. And we ought to pray for Jewish people and share the gospel with them. But the church now, the universal church of Christ in heaven and on earth, is the people of God united to him through faith. So where are they? Well, number two, we've again traced them in various places through the story. First of all, they were in Eden. Then they were in the land of Egypt. Then they were in the land of Canaan. 
Then they were sent to exile, then they brought back to the restored land, and now they're spread all over the world. So where is Zion? Because Zion is the focus of their life. The people of God dwell in the presence of God, and uh, in the Old Testament that presence is focused in the holiest place of all, in the temple on the mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So where is Zion now? Is it just heaven? Well, yes, but that is the not yet aspect, isn't it? Uh, you remember how Peter in his second letter talks about new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. That's what we're looking forward to, he says. Um, and uh, it's in 2 Peter 3.13. In keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's the not yet, though. Where is the church now? Well, just as the kingdom is wherever the king is ruling, so clearly the people of God are wherever Jesus is reigning. Uh, if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, you'll find that it uses a very interesting tense to describe the present situation of the church. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Not one day you will come, but already by faith, through the gospel, you have come. Now, the focal point of Mount Zion was the temple where God dwelt among his people and met with them. Do you remember how John says that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us? So the place where we meet God now is not the temple mountain in Jerusalem, which anyway is now a mosque, but is Jesus who replaces that temple, he is the place where we meet with God. That's why he said in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. Speaking of the temple of his body, because he's the place in his body broken for us where we meet with God. We don't have an earthly temple. In a sense, we are now the temples of the Holy Spirit because we're united to Christ by faith. So wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. And wherever he dwells, there is the temple. In heaven, in its fullness, he reigns in splendor, but that's not yet for us. In our hearts, now, he lives by his spirit, and God's people are united to, to him and meet with him through Christ. And by our union with Christ, we become temples of the Holy Spirit in whom God lives. So we're on earth as citizens of heaven. But thirdly, over the page, what of God's rule? In Eden, we saw that there was a rule that defined their freedom. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you must not eat. Uh, in uh, the Old Testament, as it progresses, we saw the stipulations and decrees and the laws that were given at Sinai. We read in Jeremiah about the new covenant written on our hearts, not on tablets of stone. We saw Jesus break the bread and distribute the cup and say, this is the new covenant through my death. So what about the law? Well, God's rule is now ministered through the gospel. The exposition of the law is the gospel. And there is no greater exposition of the gospel as covenant fulfillment than the letter to the Hebrews, which we're about to look at. But as I've said often in this series, it's not that the rule of God no longer applies. It's not that we are now set free 
from God's uh, direction in the way in which we should live our lives. But as we said earlier, doctrine is grace and ethics is gratitude. And we respond to the grace of the gospel by living lives of holiness, calling on the Holy Spirit to empower us, for we can never do it any other way, writing his word on our hearts and in our minds, giving us the strength and the ability as we feed on that word and trust in Christ to turn from sin and cleave to righteousness. And in that way, we live under God's rule. Not yet perfectly, we fail over and over again, but in the not yet, we will live perfectly when we are made into his likeness and when all the sinful human nature is removed from us. The sinful part of our human nature, our humanity will then be sanctified. So you see how God's people under God's rule in God's place actually focuses this now and not yetness of the gospel. But there's a lot that we have now, but there are the far horizons, there are the ultimates to which we look. Now, one of my favorite books in the New Testament is the book of Hebrews, because it pulls together so many of these great themes. No one knows who its author is, and I'm not going to speculate on that. But it's interesting to see how the author describes this wonderful book of 13 chapters. In chapter 13, verse 22 at the end, he says, Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. Well, it would have taken a few um, pads of Basildon Bond to write it, I guess. But it's a work of e a word of exhortation. It is to the Hebrews in the sense that it's to Jewish believers particularly that he's writing. And as you will probably know, they were being tempted to go back to Judaism. Now, this is very germane to the whole theme of what we've been discussing together through these sessions. You see, when the Christian church started up, it was thought that it was a branch of Judaism. And the Roman Empire was prepared to tolerate ethnic religions. So if you were a Jew, you had the right to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Of course, if you rebelled, they would come in and destroy the temple. But providing you lived under the Roman yoke, you had freedom to practice your ethnic religion. And Christianity was just a sect of Judaism, they thought at first. But as the Jews made it very clear that these Christians were not part of their uh, religion, the Roman Empire began then to mobilize itself against Christianity because it was a new religion that was a threat to the imperial cult. After all, Caesar is Lord. He is a god. And uh, it is part of your loyalty to the empire to affirm the deity of the emperor. Now, for these Christians then, as the century goes on, there is increasing pressure on them. It would be very easy to retreat under the umbrella of Judaism, particularly if you were a Jew. It might well mean that you avoided being persecuted. And that's exactly what's happening when the letter to the Hebrews is written to these Jewish Christians. What the writer wants to say is that if you do that, it would be like retreating from reality to shadowland. It would be like going back from light to darkness. And so, under the theme of no turning back, his aim is to show how all that the Old Testament valued has found its fulfillment in Christ, and there is no option of going back under an umbrella of Judaism. But you see, their Jewish friends were saying to them, think of what you've lost, A, B, C, and D. You've lost the law that was spoken by angels. 
you've turned your back on that great Old Testament law code with all the pharisaical uh, exposition of it. It was given by the angels and through holy men over the generations. It was expounded and worked out. And the writer says, but we've got a gospel that was spoken by his son. So our gospel is greater than the dispensation of the law. B, they said you've left the heroic grandeur of Moses and the priestly dignity of Aaron. You've left behind all the wonderful garments of the high priest and their splendid significance and all the sacrificial system. But the writer to the Hebrews says they were servants. We worship the Son, and he's our great high priest. See, they were saying, but why reject the temple worship? Why turn your back on the glorious incense that is offered to God and the wonderful worship of the uh, music and the solemn sacrifices that the priests make? You're just following a crucified Nazarene. But the writer to the Hebrews says, we have one sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We don't need that system. D. You have no priest, you have no sacrifice, you have no temple, you've nothing visible and tangible. You've left all the glories of Judaism. And for what? A Christ you can't see, a cross of shame that he's supposed to die on, and no priest to minister for you. But the writer to the Hebrews says, God's people have always lived by faith and not by sight. We've always believed in the things that we don't yet see. That's what faith is. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're holding on to the not yet in the midst of the now. So the question that Hebrews answers is, do I have enough as a Christian to justify what I've given up? I've given up my Judaistic religion. Is there enough in Christ? And the answer is Christ is superior in every category. You know that great word in Hebrews is better. A better priest, a better sacrifice, a better mediator, a better covenant. The message is one of total fulfillment of the Old Testament shadows in the person of Jesus. And that is especially spelt out in chapter 7 to 10. In chapter 7, the Levitical priesthood is superseded by the priest-king, the priest who is king, after the order not of Aaron, but of Melchizedek, you remember, the priest-king from way back in Genesis. No time to stop on that, but it's a fascinating story. So don't go back to the priesthood, because Jesus is the priest who is king. No earthly priest is needed. That's why we haven't just the Church of England hasn't just made women priests. Christian women have been priests from the moment they were converted. Chapter 8, the Old Covenant uh, tablets of stone are superseded by the New Covenant. In Jeremiah 31, it was promised. In chapter 8, we're told that it's happened. There's an extensive quotation from Jeremiah 31, and it says that was the shadow, the Old Covenant on the stone tablets. The reality is God's word written on the heart. Don't go back, there's nothing to go back to. Chapter 9, the Old Testament ritual has been superseded by Christ, who is both the priest and the offering. So it's not needed any longer. Just look with me if you've got your Bible open at Hebrews 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That's to say, not a part of this creation. 
In other words, he wasn't like the priest in the temple at Jerusalem. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the holiest place of all, once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. See, it's once for all, it cleanses the conscience, not just externally in a ritual sense. And so that ritual has been put aside by Jesus' offering of himself. And in chapter 10, the Old Testament sacrifice is superseded by Christ, who, as we've seen, substitutes his perfect will for our, obe for our disobedient wills. Now, what the writer is saying is, there's nothing to go back to. It's finished. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, I think he meant I have completed the work the Father gave me to do. But he might also have meant the whole Old Testament corpus and all it led up to is now complete. I've done it. Finished all the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. Finished everything that the prophets spoke about. The complete work is done in Christ. So when you come to chapter 9, verses 19 to 25, you find that the writer drives home his applications. He's a great preacher, the writers of the Hebrews. That's why I like him so much. Well, one of the reasons. And at verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, and since we have a great priest, firstly, verse 22, let us draw near to God. And then he says, secondly, let us hold unswervingly to the hope. That's verse 23. And thirdly, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And the uh, corollary of that is not to give up meeting together, but to encourage one another. But you see those three lettuces. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Let us consider how to spur one another on. Faith, drawing near to God. Hope that we hold on to. Love that we spur each other on to. Whatever it may cost. Chapter 12 says it may cost us a great deal. We've got to run with patience the race that's set before us. But consider Jesus. He ran it. And we follow in his footsteps. So this glorious letter to the Hebrews, which uh, I again commend to you for, for personal study if you've never worked through it with a, uh, a reference Bible to look back at the Old Testament and see how marvelously it preaches the fulfillment then this glorious letter is a very practical treatise to these Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back now we don't have the same temptation but we are often tempted to go back tempted to go back to our old ways tempted to go back to our old religion tempted to go back to the formalism of external religion but Hebrews says, no, there's nothing to go back to. And even though we may be persecuted for believing in a Christ whom we do not see, we will run with patience that race, looking unto Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thing? We don't see him, but we look to him. Seeing is believing. No, believing is seeing. That's what the Bible says all the way through. And it's as we believe that we see him and that we are able to run the race towards him. 
Now, it is that attack of persecution, particularly in the later New Testament epistles, that generates the writings of Peter and John and Jude. For you see, as the apostolic generation began to die out and the church was left without the apostles, it became very clear that it was in a hostile environment. Uh, the great danger was persecution from outside and false teaching inside. And those are the two great concerns of the later letters of the New Testament. Paul had seen this as early as Acts chapter 20, where in the address to the Ephesian elders, he talks about false teachers who will come in disguised as sheep, but really being wolves to ravage the flock. See, false teaching is always hard to spot. The false teacher does not come in wearing a large label that says, I am a wolf. The false teacher looks like a sheep. And that, of course, is why the church is so easily taken in by false teaching. Because they're nice people. They're very often very pleasant people. But they're not teaching the word of God. So he warns the Ephesian elders to be on their lookout for false teachers because he knows that that's the way the devil will attack the church. He'll try and kill it by external persecution and he'll try and kill it by internal division over false teaching or by the false teachers splitting the church. Sometimes we have to divide from them. We have to say this is not true and pronounce God's anathema on false teaching and separate ourselves from it. Um, John and Peter say you should have nothing to do with the false teachers. But the later letters are very aware that that is the issue that the church faces as it stands on the dividing line between the apostolic and the post-apostolic era. And it's the same danger that's been faced all the way through. The church history that we know is full of that danger. Two Peter and Jude especially tackle the problem of false teachers. They do it by establishing the true gospel, by exposing to us the characteristics of false teachers, as in 2 Peter chapter 2, and by calling on the church to contend for the faith by united resistance to error, the faith once delivered to the saints. And the three letters of John emphasize that walking in the light means living in love, that truth and love go together, but it's not love at any cost. Truth is the guarantee and the ground of unity and we must unite in truth and then practice love on the basis of truth. John is arguing that belief and behavior go hand in hand, that the mind and the heart must be lined up together, that doctrine and experience are complementary and that the true Christian faith is demonstrated by truth and love. And what we see in summary form there, we find over the page in section C, is spelt out by Paul, especially in the pastorals, as we call them, the letters to Timothy and Titus. That's the place where we see the consensus of apostolic thinking about uh, the dangers that the church faces as the apostles are being translated to heaven. In 1 Timothy, Paul's concern is especially about the church at Ephesus, of which Timothy is the pastor, that the church will devote itself to making the gospel known. What was happening at Ephesus is they were being diverted into speculative controversies that centered on the law rather than the gospel. They seem to have forgotten that the gospel was the fulfillment of all that and that the church's task was to get the gospel out. Christians are therefore not to be oddballs but to be good citizens living attractive lives of freedom in Christ.
Chapters 1 and 2, the references there are to getting the gospel out and majoring on the gospel as the heart of the church's life. And chapter 3, that uh, Christ came in order to be believed on in the world. Again, it's the Genesis 12, 3 principle that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world are to be blessed, and therefore evangelism must always be at the top of the list for the Bible-believing church, because that is why the Son was sent to be the saviour of the world, and nothing must divert us from getting the gospel out. Well, that's a letter we desperately need today, isn't it? Because most churches will rather do anything than get the gospel out, it seems to me. We have certain evangelistic programs from time to time, but it's very hard, isn't it? I speak personally for us to keep evangelism at the top of the list. We'd much rather do other things in Southampton. We once had a month when I was the pastor of the church there. Well, we said, now, we need time to meet to meet our non-Christian friends and to share the good news with them in a natural way. Let's have some supper parties, do whatever you want to. We're going to have a whole week, a whole month rather, where we have no committees and no church meetings apart from a prayer meeting. Well, you wouldn't have believed it was like um, uh, becoming a heretic. I had all these phone calls. People said, but our committee's got to meet. We couldn't possibly go for a month without our committee meeting. <laughs> Why? Well, because we put evangelism at the top of the list. Very uncomfortable. We'd much rather run into our committee meeting to discuss what colour to paint the walls than get out with the gospel. That's why we need one Timothy. Because unless the church puts the gospel at the top of the list, there won't be a church. And 2 Timothy is directed more towards the pastor. 1 Timothy is a letter to the pastor about the church, which Paul says he wants read out to everybody. 2 Timothy is a letter to the pastor himself. Because Timothy wasn't always well, and he wasn't always keen, and he wasn't always very courageous. But he has to be nerved by Paul to suffer for the gospel if need be. And the way that will happen is if the gospel grips and dominates his life so that he constantly teaches it to confront error. And all of those references I've put down there are references to Timothy being exhorted by Paul to minister the gospel the more you teach and preach the gospel, the more you share it with others, the more it becomes the bloodstream of your life. And the more you will then be prepared to suffer for the gospel, if need be. That's the agenda for the church throughout history. Preaching the word, making and maturing disciples, whatever the cost. And Titus underlines the same position for the church in Crete, where Paul sent Titus to ordain elders in every place. And he tells us what responsible leadership is like. It must be, Titus 1.9, by teaching and living the truth. That's what you've got to look for in a church. Leaders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, that's very important. Sometimes people make jokes about sound Christians. I don't hear it as much these days as you used to because there aren't so many sound Christians around perhaps, but... I remember people, you know, the old chorus, I am H-A-P-P-Y, being parodied by people saying, I am S-O-U-N-D, and singing it as though somehow that was hilariously funny. I would have thought it's a very good thing to be a sound Christian and to be committed to sound doctrine and to refute those who oppose it. Let's not be ashamed of that or afraid of that. That's what the church needs. And all through chapter 2, the emphasis in Titus is teach, teach, teach. That's how you do it, you see. 
That's why the teaching ministry is central to the church. If we neglect the teaching ministry in our churches, we shall have anemic Christians. The only way you have strong Christians is by teaching the word all the time. Teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men. Not just doctrine in an abstract sense. If you look at Titus 2, you'll see it's very practical. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. Sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all the older men in your church were like that? See, it's a temptation as I'm getting older now. I feel the temptation more and more not uh, to, to resist the changes that the gospel needs to make. It's very easy for us to slip back into that mode. You know, the elder who was 50 years an elder, and as they celebrated that, the young minister said to him, well, you've been an elder for 50 years. You must have seen a lot of changes in the church in this time. And he said, yes, and I'm proud to say I've been against every one of them. <laughs> but you can't be like that if you're an older man in 2 Timothy, uh, in Titus 2, 2 terms. You want the gospel to spread. You're not committed to tradition, to the gospel. And teach the younger men to be self-controlled and set them an example in doing what's good. Teach, 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 because only if the church is kept on target will the gospel spread. See, we tend to think that the gospel will go on however off-key our churches may be and however we may divert our energies into arguing about things that don't matter. But it won't. The gospel has to be taught and learned. And only as we learn what God has done for us in Christ and this great sweep of biblical revelation we've been dipping into, right up to the return of Christ and the fulfillment of all things, only then shall we keep a clear perspective and keep the church moving forward. That's why, as I say, teaching ministry is so essential. Pray for it, support it, encourage it. When your minister teaches you the Bible, thank him for it. He will enormously appreciate it. I used to have a dear man who was a retired Baptist minister in my congregation, and he used to come to me sometimes and say, thank you so much for teaching us the Bible. And then he'd wink at me and say, I believe in giving the bouquets before the funeral. <laughs> well, I appreciated that. Encourage your teachers. Pray for them. It's the most important work that the word of God should be powerfully taught in our churches. Because all that Revelation talks about is coming... And we need to be ready for the Lord. And we need to be ready to finish in a few minutes. So let's just very quickly look at this. What is Revelation? Well, if you turn with me to the opening chapter, you'll find that the writer answers the question. 1-1. One, one, it is an apocalypse. That is an unveiling. The revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants what must soon take place. It's an unveiling. Utilizing the conventions of apocalyptic literature, which would have been well known to his readers, uh, John unveils, at the words of Jesus, what is to happen in the church and beyond the church age into eternity. It's an apocalypse. Secondly, one, two, it's a witness who testifies his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's a witness, a testimony to Jesus Christ, who is the center and the fulfillment of the book, as you would expect. It's a prophecy, 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Um, George Elton Ladd defines prophecy as light from the future shining on the present. Light from the future shining on the present. I think that's quite helpful rather than simply predictions about the future. It's looking at the present in the light of the certainties of what will be. 
interpreting God's control of the present as well as of the future. And fourthly, it's a letter, 1-4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's a pastoral, it has a pastoral purpose related to the historical setting of those who received it. How do we deal with it? Well, there's a question in two minutes. There, there are developed four major schools of interpretation. There is one that is called the Preterist, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, the Preterist School, which really means it was a tract for John's own day. It was written to those particular churches at that particular time. It's of historical interest, but it doesn't really have any direct meaning for us. I think we can reject that on the grounds that all scripture is profitable. There is a Futurist exposition, which says it is a prediction of the last days on earth, the last days of the last days. But then it would have had no meaning to its original readers. So I want to be very suspicious about that. There is a historicist interpretation, which is that it is an overview of church history down through the years, the things that were to happen that have been fulfilled in a sort of historical progression in seven stages down through the history of the church. There's some interesting ideas in that, but it's very subjective and a bit speculative. Or there is what is called the idealist view, which is that it is a symbolic portrayal of timeless truths. That um, these are the things that the church will encounter in every generation in one way or another, but which will be particularly intensified before the coming of the Lord Jesus in power and glory. Well, I always put my own view last out of humility, um, but that's what seems to me to make most sense about the book. What do we actually have when we deal with Revelation? We've got seven sevens. Remember that seven is the number of perfection in Jewish thinking, and John is a Jew writing in the apocalyptic tradition. And uh, the seven sevens, there are seven churches that are addressed. There are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven visions, the seven bowls, the seven past things. Now, that should actually be the seven last things. Somebody misread my writing there. The seven last things and the eternal Sabbath, the ultimate seventh of the heavenly rest with the epilogue at the end. So what does it mean? Well, if we take the cyclical rather than the linear view, it summarizes the content of the Bible. It really means that all the way through the history of the church, we will expect to find, and now looking back on 2,000 years, we can say this has been fulfilled. Firstly, that the world continues its rebellion, its sin against God, and its facing judgment. That continues all the way through every one of the stages. Human sin and rebellion is judged by the holiness of God. But it also teaches us in all of the stages that heaven rules, that the Lamb is enthroned after his death at the seat of power and authority. The Lamb who was slain rules the throne of heaven and of the universe. And thirdly, it says in all its stages that the future belongs to him and not to his enemies. That Christ reigns supreme over all earthly rulers, over the whole process of human history, over Satan himself, and that victory belongs to the Lord Jesus. And that is affirmed over and over again through the book. So, although obviously we can't go into detail, and uh, uh, anyway, there's so much um, 
um, not disagreement so much as uh, different, differing views about some of the details, but just looking at the big picture, those are the things that are affirmed and testified to and witnessed about and unveiled as the book goes on. The fulfillment of the promise with which we began is in chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. There we see the great multitude around the throne of God. And they sing a new song, chapter 5, verse 9, to the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them into a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Now, you remember Genesis 12? In you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So here is fulfillment of the promise. And the Lord Jesus is coming back as king. He is coming with his saints uh, in his train, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, so that the church on earth and the church in heaven will be united in his presence and will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwell. So believers must remain faithful and patient as they wait for his purposes to be completed. And the last two chapters take us to the completion of those purposes. Chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of God, out of heaven from God. And what happens? I heard a voice saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you remember how he said that back in the Pentateuch? Now it's fulfilled. Now God's people are in God's place under God's rule forever. When the heavenly Jerusalem comes down at the end of time and the eternal kingdom is inaugurated. And what a glorious thing that will be. You know those wonderful words at the end of chapter 21. I didn't see a temple in the city. The Lord God is the temple. You don't need a place to meet. We are met now in the Lamb, in Christ. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the nations walk by its light. And the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. There's no splendor aside from the splendor of that city. Its gates will not be shut. There is no night there. Glory and honor of the nations are brought into it, but nothing impure will ever enter it. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what makes us citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. No temple, no sun, no separation, no sin, and all because the Lamb was slain. So he is the one who will bring us into the fulfillment of all things. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, come, Lord Jesus, and let him who hears say, Come. And then with a little play on words, Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And from heaven there comes the testimony. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And the response from earth, amen, come, Lord Jesus. And until he comes, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. You know that song that says, come on, heaven's children. Uh, as we look to that great day when he who shall come will come, 
we know that just as those promises from Genesis are being fulfilled in the gospel, so they will come to their completion in the appearance of the king. That's where we're heading. That's what this salvation leads to. And so we can on earth join in the song that says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Amen. <laughs>